Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, should transport trucks be allowed to take shortcuts through the lower city? Labor groups in Ontario are hoping to get the government to listen to them by pressuring backbenchers. And even though Attorney General Barr's summary of the Mueller report says there's no collusion, still a lot of questions remaining. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. And what about trucks in the downtown? This is, I know, something that's been a sore point for an awful lot of people for many, many years. We've always encouraged uh, people to move downtown, to live downtown, to play downtown. Uh, But some are suggesting it's getting more and more dangerous because of these heavy trucks that are zooming down the streets. Well, the uh, city's going to try to do something about that. Uh, Joining us to talk about this is uh, the Councillor for Downtown, Ward 2, uh, Councillor Jason Farr, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Hey, Jay, how are you doing today? Good, Bill. Good morning. Listen, let's let's, let's get into this. I know that they've been talking about this for years and years and years. Uh, We're we're kind of between a rock and a hard place, and I guess essentially what you guys have to talk about here is is finding a balance uh, between livable neighborhoods, but at the same time, uh, you know, looking after the Hamilton economy. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the movement of goods is essential. And I think uh, prior to a a fulsome review of the truck route, which would have been over 10 years ago, uh, you know, we weren't factoring in, obviously, uh, the Red Hill Valley Parkway, which connects to the link, which connects to the 403, which connects to the the Skyway. And and, uh, certainly, uh, I I think the time is now. and, And so, when you factor in all those, uh, you know, initiatives, mandates of council for, for livable communities and, and uh, safer streets. And, you know, there's, there's cycling master plans, there's pedestrian mobility plans. Uh, there is a disconnect. And at what level? I think after today's subcommittee meeting of the truck route subcommittee, uh, we'll, we'll have a better uh, way forward and, and hopefully uh, in short order a report back on, you know, where these trucks are going. Uh, what alternative routes they may factor in uh, to accommodate some of these mandates. Well, and I know this has been discussed before, and I know there have been some suggestions from citizens groups and, and other stakeholders in this situation, uh, and, and also obviously from the economy. From I, I understand Burlington Street's not uh, as, as populous as it was before when it comes to factories and, and that sort of stuff, but it's still an industrial area, and there's still movement of goods that have to go back and forth. Uh, as you mentioned, Jay, because of the Red Hill, and and some of the other improvements that we've made over the last little while, anybody's going Niagara Way is is in pretty good shape. I mean, there seems to be a path there that uh, that I, is going to get them there. The problem seems to be going the other way towards the 403 toward the west end here, uh, because let's face it, you're going right through residential neighborhoods, and I imagine you got uh, quite a few irate neighbors because of that. I would suggest it's a growing number of concerned and now I'd say much more organized protests to that end of uh, residents and businesses. Uh, that have the concern. I would also focus that uh, concern safely on 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 cut throughs of industrial trucks. So, eighteen wheelers, twenty one wheelers, or or more, uh, and not necessarily a, a, a growing uh, uh, disdain for those trucks making deliveries in the core. In fact, I don't know of anyone who's suggesting we take that off the table. So we're looking at, um, yes, uh, primarily that 403, that Windsor-London corridor that heads towards Hamilton, and then because it exists, are going from uh, Main Street at the 403 and coming down Main into the industrial core, hopefully not cutting through the city onto Tesla to get to Niagara, uh, because, of course, they should be uh, making that exit at the uh, Lincoln-Alexander Expressway instead of uh, contemplating cutting through the city. 
if they're heading Niagara Way. And then there's there's uh, obviously uh, a focus on those those heavier industrial vehicles. And I think what we we were going to hear today uh, is it's time now to do a more, more fulsome study. So we've got some very smart uh, and focused staffers on this from our transportation demand management crew to our traffic ops, Steve Malloy, uh, Brian uh, Hollingworth, and others will be reporting to us on how we might better analyze who these trucks are, where they're coming from, where they're going to. And then I think the the other question is, I mean, obviously we want to communicate uh, with our our trucking logistics community, whether local or from out of town. Uh, There are good people. They're great community uh, corporate citizens, and uh, they obviously will be at, at the table as we move forward and create this report. But then we also want to talk to those industries that are receiving the deliveries or shipping goods out of our industrial core off Burlington Street. And primarily when we say that, we're looking at industries from Wellington Street uh, and then heading east. And, of course, the divider from that industrial core, for the most part, is Nikola Tesla or Burlington Street, which is an underutilized road now, Bill. And as you alluded, alluded to rightly, I mean, industry isn't what it used to be. There's still, you know, it's hard to find uh, a piece of vacant industrial lands in that section still, much of it, though, over time has become warehousing as opposed to, you know, actual industrial businesses, although, you know, it's still a key part of our economy. And we want to communicate not only with the trucking industry, but obviously those people who are, are shipping and delivering and, and receiving goods. Problem, though, is in the west end of Burlington Street or Tesla Boulevard, whichever people want to refer to it as, uh, you're moving right into a, a residential neighborhood and a very exactly. proactive residential neighborhood. You and I have had discussions over the last number of years about how some of those residents have been very proactive when it comes to traffic calming situations and, and trying to make their their neighborhood a much more livable neighborhood. Uh, and and that that's the problem. I mean, to a point, I guess, as you said, around Wellington Street or so, you're okay. You're in an industrial zone, and, and you expect to see those trucks. But the further west they go, then all of a sudden they're moving into that. They have to stop at James Street. And then where do they go? I mean, they can't go up to Barton because you're into the Tiffany neighborhood right now. And again, that's a residential area. The, you know, now, you may recall, and our listeners, I'm sure some of the older listeners would know, uh, for many years there was a, a ring road that was on the books that was supposed to be essentially a, a, an expressway that was going to go through the north end. That city council nixed that a long time ago. Uh, we're not even considering an, an, another road here. I mean, is, is, that, is everything on the books here or everything on the table? Or are you, you going to have to try to make do with what we have here? Well, I'll tell you, I had a long conversation last evening with Councilor Marula, who's been on the Truck Route Subcommittee for many terms now. He can't make today's meeting. He's got some dental surgery. But we talked about the, the expropriations that occurred on that ring road many years ago and, uh, you know, the evolution of that idea. And, and I, it was before my time, but, you know, I think rightly it was scrapped. And, and I, I can safely say that that is definitely not going to be part of the discussion moving forward. I certainly won't be moving any motion to revisit that idea. It was a bad idea, I think, because it is cutting essentially through two residential neighborhoods. It would have been. And uh, ultimately, uh, there is a service now called the Red Hill Valley Parkway uh, for a whole lot of industries, uh, for a, lo- a lot of uh, trucking companies as well that are servicing those industries, whether indirectly or directly affiliated, and it makes it easier. So I think more of the conversation is going to be in line with at what point along that stretch of Nikola Tesla or, or Burlington Street, they're both obviously uh, on the same latitude line, uh, are we going to contemplate uh, an assertive effort in asking those industries that, that are, are, are contemplating a westerly 
uh, approach to delivery or, or exiting those industries to take that Red Hill Valley Parkway to not cut through the city, but instead make a left out of those industries, get on that parkway, which is, you know, no stoplights. It's a direct approach. It's maybe three, four kilometers out of your way, depending where you are uh, to, to on, you know, as it relates to the industrial core. Is it around Wentworth Street? Is it around Sherman? Is it around Wellington Street? Maybe go out of your way a little bit, but in the long run, there's no stop and go. There's no air brakes. There's no considerate. There's no concern for consideration of, of the air pollutions that come with all that stop and go and, and pedestrian safety uh, potential uh issues and 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 get on that red hill climb up the red hill take a right onto the lincoln alexander parkway and then there you go you're hitting the 403 so if you're heading west is it is it fair to ask or at least investigate whether or not going a little bit out of your way initially on your outgoing route from the industrial core is something that you can work with the city on because ultimately i think that's what it's about we have an opportunity now since scrapping that perimeter road through the north end community through the north end residential community uh that didn't exist back then it's called the red hill valley parkway the way i look at it bill i mean you know i've personally i've had a summer student three years ago studied a number of trucks ultimately you you know you mentioned james you mentioned how burlington street essentially ends at wellington street and 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 uh and, and then, and then it, it really comes into a, a, a residential community. It, the truck route actually does not exceed Wellington Street. Uh, if you're heading east along Burlington Street, uh, it, it actually has, there's a great big sign there that says all trucks must turn left. So Wellington Street is the easterly end of the truck route on the north, uh, uh, industrial core, uh, sector. Uh, Victoria Street, if you're coming from the west into the industrial core, uh, is, is the route as it relates to, uh, uh, the cut through heavy industrial trucks through our, through our downtown. So we're looking at Cannon Street that heads west as a truck route and Main Street that heads east and Victoria and Wellington are the uh, north south corridors for that route. So, so James Street, you, you know, while we do see trucks from time to time, there really shouldn't be any trucks between Wellington and James in the North End neighborhood to begin with. Yeah, but you made that distinction, and I think that's important. I'm sure it's going to be part of the discussion today. Uh, we have to differentiate between um, movement of goods and delivery trucks. Uh, and you know, mm-hmm. and they, they can be large, too, but you don't you'll usually see 18-wheelers pulling up in front of a store uh, in most situations along that area anyway. So that's that's going to be a, a, a determination, I guess, that the committee is going to have to make. But in your in your vision then, Jay, what you see is you basically don't want to see trucks in the, in the west end of the city then. In well, other words, enter, enter and exit the city through the east end on the Red Hill. Yeah, well, I mean, definitely I'm going to support what I believe staff is putting forward, which is, you know, it's something I asked for late last term and at the start of this term when we approved the transportation master plan, which which contemplated a whole great number of things, pedestrian mobility, uh, cycling master plan, implementation of safer streets, uh, pedestrian crossovers, and as a separate category in the criteria, truck routes. And, and we're, we're essentially continuing to say, and hopefully moving the yardsticks today, staff, you need to come back to us with something fuller than what we know now. Up until now and for the last decade, Bill, there have been modifications to the truck route. But they've been ad hoc. They've been council moves movements from, you know, Ward Six, Ward Four. Different streets have been amended. Some with with amendments that saw okay, trucks are all right, but they need to be smaller at certain times. Others where they just took streets completely off the truck route map. And while we had that truck route subcommittee, 
these ad hoc motions that that have all been supported have primarily in the last decade or so, especially in the last eight years during my time. I think I can recall three. One was done during the other was Kenilworth and the other was either Upper Ottawa or Upper Kenilworth. They've been modified on a on a per motion basis, on a sort of ad hoc basis. What we're hopeful for today is support for staff to come back and really communicate, really get an understanding of where these trucks are going. Last year on my 500 Yamaha Majesty one afternoon, one very warm afternoon, I sat out front the Spectator building on Main Street and waited for trucks to come off the 403. They're heading east. They get on our Main Street ramp. They get on the Main Street, and I would follow them. I could only, uh, uh, in a two-and-a-half, three-hour period, uh, follow seven trucks. All seven did land in the industrial core, so their destinations were the industrial core of Hamilton. They weren't using our downtown as a cut-through to get Niagara-bound. Instead, they were literally making those deliveries to those industrial properties. Uh, Two or three of them were the newer industrial properties, Parrish and Heinbecker area, and one might have been Collective Arts Brewery, which has expanded enormously in the last three or four years. But the reality is, you know, that's just one counselor on a 500cc motorbike. I mean, if we could really wrap our heads around this, dedicate staff time, which I think is going to be the recommendation from staff to the committee today, we can not only talk to those logistics trucking companies, but also those industries and hopefully create some relationships where there's a mutual understanding that if we can mitigate to a great extent the issue that we see now, the prevailing issue of heavy industrial trucks cutting through our neighborhoods and through our core, through Ward 1, through Ward 2, and to some extent Ward 3, then, uh, you know, that's a great starting point. And get back to us soon on how those conversations are going. So we need to talk to all stakeholders. I'll tell you one thing. Today at the Truck Route Subcommittee, as our first meeting of this term uh, begins at 1 o'clock at Council Chambers, we'll definitely hear from one aspect of that uh, uh, community and in a big way, clearly with the delegations that I see before me on the report. And those are the residents of these areas. And I think it's a safe bet to suggest that every delegate that comes up and spend their five minutes talking to us today are going to be explaining the the cons more than the pros as it relates to industrial trucks cutting through their neighborhoods. Well, there's two elements to this, and I know we've been talking about this under the the guise of safety, and that certainly needs to be the priority, but there are a couple of other things, too. One is compliance, and and, and that's got to be discussed because I know that you've seen examples, and way back when I was on council, we used to see examples where you'd get the odd trucker that would freelance and go through a residential neighborhood to take a shortcut, and that's Mm going to be problematic. But the other is this tears the crap out of your roads. I mean, you know, 18-wheelers are pretty heavy vehicles, obviously. That's a statement of fact. Uh, And if they're driving where they're not supposed to be driving, that's how these roads get banged up to the extent that they do, and that costs all of us money. The extremely great point. I mean, you you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, in terms of operating dollars, uh, you know, if you're mitigating to a great extent or even eliminating some areas where heavy industrial trucks are allowed now, you're actually uh, creating a cost savings in the long run because there's, in all likelihood, uh, you know, a greater uh, a window of time between repairs and ultimate, ultimately redevelopment or replacement of those roads. And, that, you know, it's a great point. And, you know, we've had consistently in the North End, uh, unfortunately, now and again, uh, some truckers feeling Ferguson Street as an example, not a truck route, but they'll use it as a shortcut. So they're bypassing Wellington. Maybe it's jammed up. Maybe they missed the turn and they take that next available turn. Well, we're talking about a very narrow street uh, that for many years has been an illegal cut through for trucks to get back onto that route on Cannon Street because it shoots right up. 
And we're also talking about now, and I think for a very good reason, one of the streets in the worst condition in terms of in, in dire need of uh, residential uh, road repair. Fortunately, that's on the books for 2019. We've been waiting a few years to make that happen. But the last thing I want is to fully redo that road and come fall, these illegal turns happen again and more trucks come on that road. And, and sooner rather than later, we have to look at repairing it again. And, and I think in large part, the reason why Ferguson Street North is probably one of the worst uh, streets in terms of uh, condition in probably the city is because, you know, over time, over a decade or more, it's been used as an unofficial truck route. Well, we'll see how the meeting goes later on today. It should be a lively session anyway. Jay, thanks so much for the update. Appreciate the time today. Thank you, Bill. That's uh, Ward 2 Councillor Jason Farr. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, uh, to suggest that the uh, Doug Ford government has uh, released some rather controversial uh, policies over the last couple of weeks, I guess, would be a massive understatement. We've seen the pushback on things like the autism protocol and the funding formula for that, uh, the tuition uh, program. Uh, well, we could probably spend the next hour just going down the list on some of those things. That's that's what happens, obviously, with the governments. Well, Ontario's labor unions are, are going to push back uh, here in the province of Ontario. They're hoping to get the government to listen to them by trying to make the backbenchers worry about losing support from their constituents. Joining us to talk about the strategy here is uh, Warren Smokey Thomas, who is the president of OPSU. And uh, first of all, Smokey, thanks for the time. Great to have you with us today. Oh, no, thanks for having me on, Bill. I appreciate it. Well, there's been a lot going on over the last little while. Maybe before we uh, we get into what you guys are going to plan to do here, let's let's talk a little bit about your reaction and, and your take on, on some of these policies. Uh, obviously, uh, the, the education protocol where teaching jobs are going to be lost. We've talked to teachers' unions about that over the last couple of weeks. But there have been other initiatives the Ford government have tried that I'm sure have, uh, maybe I should put it this way, have caught your interest. Yes, oh, yeah, for sure. Well, on the autism file, uh, I've got hundreds and hundreds of members that uh, provide services in all spectrums from speech therapy to physiotherapy to the ABI, uh, you know, behavior uh, therapies. Uh, and they're all probably going to lose their jobs if they keep going the way, you know, if they go with the plan that the Tories are proposing to go with. And, uh, and, and so the consequences of that will be that where will anybody go get service? There's a few private providers out there. So the basic problem with uh, services for kids with autism is that it should not be a voucher system. So that's where they give you some money, you go find your services, because there aren't services to find. There are services out there. Uh, Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario, many, many organizations down southwestern Ontario in the Toronto area that do it on a not-for-profit basis. And with the, uh, what the uh, Ford government is proposing to do to make it all privately, uh, you know, all private operators, which even in the public sector, there's not enough people to help all the kids on the waiting list. So it is a disaster waiting to happen. We've uh, been supporting uh, the, the autism coalitions uh, with money. We've paid for buses for the rally at Queen's Park. We're doing that again. We've had joined in with demonstrations at a lot of uh, MPP offices around the province. I was at one at uh, Lisa McLeod's office. Uh, we actually got to take a, a mom in, myself and, a, and our local president from GON. And what I put on the table there to her chief of staff, is, uh, Lisa wasn't there, but her chief of staff was uh, for the constituency office. We want to actually present to the government, you know, a plan that we see would work, make it public, not for profit and expand services and ways of doing that. So, Smokey, when you do that sort of thing, what kind of reaction do you get? From, what kind of reception do you get? 
Well, we had to get the police to go negotiate uh, to have three people go in, and nobody went near the office. Like, it was a very peaceful protest, um, and uh, very well attended in drenching rain, I might add. It was a wet one. It never seems to be nice on days like that. Because but, uh, uh, you've got to have some kind of a relationship with the sitting government, whether it's uh, you know oh, conservative, liberal, NDP, it doesn't yeah. much matter. Um, let's face it, you, you're representing an awful lot of people. And the, the reason I'm asking is because I know that... Uh, uh, the premier was asked about this this past weekend. He was at that uh, conference, that Manning conference that we were talking about. And uh, I, I'll read the quote. I know you know it, but for the sake of our listeners who maybe don't know, uh, know this and are not aware of this, uh, uh, this is what Premier Ford said. He says, I differentiate between labor and labor leadership. Uh, he says, I love the frontline teachers, and we may not see eye to eye with the head of the unions because all they want to do is collect their union dues and start pocketing into their pockets. Uh, doesn't sound like the basis for a very strong relationship, Smokey. No, it doesn't. No, that'd be akin to me saying he's the only premier because because he wants to put all that taxpayer's dollars in his own pocket. That's what he's suggesting, and nothing could be further from the truth. Unions are the most open democratic uh, institutions going. In my union, I'll give you an example. At a convention, every every nickel we spend is accounted for by uh, external auditors who audit our books every year. They audit my office and the treasurer's office, like to the nickel. And uh, our my salary is posted uh, in in our uh, uh, right in uh, you know the uh, report to convention. I make about I think it's one hundred and thirty four thousand dollars a year, and uh, and we post everything. So he's trying to make us like we're uh, crooks and thieves. And and I'd, when he does that, I'd suggest perhaps he's looking in the mirror when he starts thinking that. So, but if he's and you know Mike Harris tried that in ninety five. I was around for ninety five, and it backfired on Harris. And um, there were days of actions, and, and, and there was a lot of pushback. Uh, the world's different today. Uh, we also have lots of other tools at our disposal besides fax machines. Uh, we have social media, all kinds of things, Twitter, you know, all of those other things that, where you can get your message out much more quickly. And uh, so, he, but for Mr. Ford, and I, I've, been, I've been trying to meet with him since he got elected, and I'd say, you know, I'll ask him once again. You know, my union, uh, we represent the widest range of public services there is. If it touches your life in any way, one of my members has a hand in it, and I want to sit and talk to the guy. And uh, he, he said, but he doesn't want to meet because I don't think, uh, well, if you meet, then it, 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 you get to put ideas in their head, and I, think, I don't think he wants any ideas other than the ones he has. But given the fact that uh, through the campaign, and, and certainly just about every day now since he's been in office uh, since last June, Smokey, uh, he's reiterated uh, that he wants to find $6 billion in savings. That's that's his mantra. That's what he's trying to do, which is going to have an impact on a lot of people in the, in the union that you represent, which I, I would assume uh, w- would probably motivate you to want to be at least at the table, if not for those discussions. I mean, that's the government decision, but at least have some advice and, and have some input into that. I, I, I'm assuming from what you're saying that hasn't happened. Oh, not at all. Can I give you one quick example that illustrates it? Yeah, sure. So there's a story in the paper a while ago. Birth certificates have taken 15 weeks to get. Well, there's a reason for that. My members do that. They work in Thunder Bay, Ontario, where they produce those cards, process them, and produce them. There's 15 vacancies in an office of about 30 or 40 people. Well, you can't do all the volume of work with 15 less people. So what the employer's doing is saying to the workers, Hey, we'll give you two hours overtime every night, and you can work 10 hours a day on the weekend overtime. And people are going, well, you know what? Actually, no, I have a life, and please fill those vacancies. So Mr. Ford's doing that in all parts of the government. 
So there are uh, Ministry of Labor inspectors who do labor standards, so make you safe, make your rights for non-union workers, right? They've got uh, one quarter of their positions are vacant, not being filled. So he's trying to say here, I won't lay anybody off, but if you don't fill vacancies, of which right now in, in the Ontario Public Service directly, just my bargain here, we think we're getting numbers local by local by local because the employer won't give them to us, that there's probably a thousand vacancies. And, and those vacancies, Bill, are the people that when you get on the phone with the government, you go into an office, you do anything with the government, there are the people you encounter first. So I'd say to the public, please, if it takes longer, don't yell at the worker. Go see your local MPP, especially if you're a Tory, and say, hey, come on here. No, I thought you weren't going to cut the front lines. And he is cutting the front lines. And the way you can save money, I've said it before, is I don't want to see anybody lose their job, but there are too many bosses. Like There are too many managers. There are too many policy wonks. And if he would do what he said he was going to do, look at that part only, look for efficiencies in the management side, maybe we wouldn't be in the, heading down the road doing all the war with this guy. Yeah, but anybody who's followed politics for the longest time, as you have, and, and certainly as I have over the years, Smokey, that, that's a, a little political wordsmanship that they play. I, you know, we're not going to, oh, nobody's yeah. going to get fired. Well, no, that, that's fine. But the reality here is if you if you shrink the budgets for those departments, uh, positions are eliminated. And it might be through attrition. It might be because somebody retires. But if they don't get replaced, then you've got a smaller workforce. And that means services are going to be impacted, whether it's nurses, whether it's teachers, whether it's the people that work in those offices to renew your license plate or your birth certificate or whatever the case might be. If there used to be eight people there and there's only three there now, that's that's a reduction in service levels. Well, they're right down to, I'd give you, if I give you an example of a really stupid decision. So down near uh, Windsor and Sarnia, there's a little place called Wheatley, and there's 40 of my members work in an office there for Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry. So they patrol the waterways there. Big, big commercial fishing is huge down that way, uh, the biggest area in Ontario, I believe. And so they're saying they're going to move the 40 workers there inland to Chatham, Ontario, and have them work from there. Well, I've like I've seen some stupid decisions in my time, but there's got to be some other ulterior motive there. And, then, you know, and that one, we're just, like, scratching our heads, so I've turned to, tried to turn the press down there on to Bob Bailey, a Tory MPP. He's been around a long time. Hey, Bob, like, go ask your government. What what the hell? I mean, this is, I've seen some dumb ones in my time. But any, but it, you know, in the ministry, in, like, so my members look after the environment, look after wildlife, you know, uh, forestry, they do all that sort of stuff. And a lot of these cuts are invisible to people. Uh, you know, Ford has said he's going to unwind those burdensome regulations on water and sewage control. Well, Walkerton, you know, killed people. Uh, the waters, you know, tainted water scandal up there has left many residents in the Walker area still with lifelong catastrophic health care issues like colostomies, ileostomies, kidney failures, on dialysis their whole life. So, and if he's going to undo those regulatory burdens, well, I mean, like, we may not see the results of that for a year or two, but I guarantee you a tragedy will happen. The Walkerton recommendations came after a public inquiry. So these are the kinds of things that Mr. Ford's going after. Now, I believe that if we go out and this is a strategy of going after the back countries, a lot of those Tories won by 5% of the vote, 10%, and most Tories aren't like Doug Ford. They're actually what you would call a progressive conservative. He's not. So I figure, and Buckley from the OFL figures, that you know, if we go lobby those backbenchers, and we've been doing it, the Unifor's been doing it, we've been doing it, other unions have been doing it, 
we go in and we and we pick an issue and we talk about the issue, one that's pertinent in their writing, right? One that, that you know belongs to them for their interest. So the ones that have met with us, I think they are nervous. Now they're stopping meeting. In Cornwall, Ontario, three mums, two mums, sorry, with, with children with autism, went into the local uh, Tory MPP and said, we'd like to meet. Well, he's not here. Well, could we leave a letter, write a letter? And the woman said, we got to get these kids out of here. you got to get these kids out. The woman in the office called the police. Three police cruisers rolled up with the lights flashing, sirens blaring, to haul these two mums and their kids out of the office. I mean, this is the level of paranoia in the Tory ranks. And and how I'm absolutely, you know, they'll crush a fly with a with a sledgehammer. So if we, so I I'm convinced that uh, you know if we can get the Tories to take back their party from Doug Ford, take I've been in that legislature and I've watched them train seal, I'll jump up, clap like crazy, cheer and holler, sit back down. It is the most childish thing I've ever seen. And if we can get them to take their party back, perhaps perhaps we can stop Doug Ford from uh, really doing a lot of really serious, serious damage to this province. He's going down the road of privatization with more vigor and vim than the liberals ever did. And, you know, the Auditor General pointed out $8 billion in excess expenditures just in construction projects in a 10-year period up to 2015. We don't know since then. Doug Ford's doing the same thing, only more of it. So this guy is uh, disingenuous. He lied to the people of Ontario. He's not for the... He's not for the little guy, as he likes to say. He's for big business. He's for his friends. We've seen his partisanship. You know, Bill, the 407 controversy during the, during the leadership uh, uh, contest where he won the leadership. Mm-hmm. There were irregularities in the people that he'd signed up that voted for him to be the leader. And there's an investigation ongoing into how the 407 customer list Right, how that was uh, uh, accessed somehow, breached or hacked or hacked, I guess would be the word, and a whole bunch of people on that list ended up being Tory party members and didn't know it. So that investigation is being conducted by the OPP. Oh, golly gee whiz! Uh, I'm told um, uh, that that investigation was by York Region, and he just plucked the fellow to York Region, made him the commissioner of the OPP. So he's trying to. He reminds me a lot of Donald Ford or Donald Ford. Donald Trump. I know, yeah. Did the guy. Well, yeah. So, so okay, we understand, because I, I, I'm concerned about that, and levels of, of employment, sure, but also service levels. I mean, we just saw that last week. My, I had to take my son over to the license bureau there to get his driver's license. We waited yeah. an hour. I mean, there were five service stations there, and only two people working. And I thought, oh, somebody's on lunch. No, it was like that for the whole hour. They're, they're, well, they're understaffed just about every place. But how that's... how do you do this, though, Smokey? If, if, if you're going to meet with the kind of resistance that you have so far, where the backbenchers are saying, I, I, I don't want you in our office. Uh, I mean, there's, there has to be some opportunity here for you to have a sit down with them. Yeah, well, uh, so just go back to the licensing. So when you took your son over to get his driver's license, that's privatized. Uh, Mike Harris did that. And the reason there's only two stations out of five open is they don't care if you got to wait. They make more money paying less wages. So that's privatized. That's not public service. That one well, yeah, no, but we had to go to both stores. I, I know you talked oh, about okay. the service yeah, center, no, but no, we, had yeah, to go to, no, we had to go to the MTO yeah. office, too. So, uh, so, so I'll address the you know, putting the heat on them. So, they, they, you know, once it's true, I think it's true. Once you know, government works hard to get elected, then they work hard to stay in power, and then they want to work hard to be reelected. If we can disrupt that process of their, you know, their agenda, and and convince them, and I think it's not too hard to convince them that a lot of their party members are in danger of not being reelected. They might finally grow uh, a spine, if you will, inside their backbench. 
and and start to say, "Hey, Doug, enough's enough. Like we're not we're not bullies. Most of those people are not bullies." Well, you Bob saw Bailey, the smoking. You, know. you saw this. You mentioned the autism program. Uh, there was a big pushback when Lisa McLeod announced that, and and and. Let's face it, the government caved in. I mean, they said, okay, we're going to have to make some changes. We saw that with the federal government a year or so ago when they tried to come up with revisions for business tax, and it was the backbench MPs. They didn't do it publicly. They didn't try to embarrass their leaders, but they certainly did it behind closed doors and said, look, we're taking a lot of heat here, and the government backed off of that sort of thing. So it it does work, but you got to get to them first. Oh, and we will. I mean, so the uh, fundraising season is coming, so it's barbecues, golf tournaments, and everything else. So for Mr. Ford, if he doesn't think we can disrupt your fundraising efforts, all he's got to do is ask the Liberals what who did to them during their fundraising efforts. We uh, disrupted, you know, we just go out and leaflet their uh, golf tournaments early in the morning when they're all rolling in to go in a golf tournament. We were there with, you know, five, ten people at each gate just handing out leaflets, slowing the lineup down a bit, and getting right to their fundraisers, the people that actually support them. The, he had that great big fundraiser dinner up there in Etobicoke there a few weeks ago. I, I was up at that, and it was really disrupted, and it was peaceful. And, uh, the, and so a lot of people paid a lot of money and didn't get to hear him speak. So, you know, they say they made $4 million out that dinner. Well, I would suspect there might be some people looking to get their money back because that's what happened to liberals. So we are getting Oregon. So my message to the Tories is this. We're getting organized, We and, and we will... Uh, this isn't a battle, this is a war. For the next three and a half years, they, these backbenchers have a choice. They can sit back, take the take the abuse that's going to be heaped on them by all of society, not just unions, all of, you know, students, everybody else, or they can say in their caucus meeting, you know, they can get together and say, you know what, hey, you up there front, stop right now. We did not get elected to destroy Ontario. We got elected to be reasonable people and save money. And you know what? You should talk to the people that do the work and people that represent the people that do the work. Find out how to do that. You should not be, uh, you know, breaking promises. A lot of those Tories signed our pledge during our We Own It campaign to fight privatization of public services. They signed the pledge to never privatize. So we've got, you know, guys like Vic Fidelli, the finance minister, you know, like, so all these people, they're they're being forced to break promises they made to the people in their writings that voted for them because of a guy like Doug Ford, and that, I don't think they I don't think they want to break those promises. You know, I, I think they want to keep them. I think they want to do what's right for their constituents, right what's right for the people of Ontario, and uh, and not go down that road with with Doug Ford. I mean, it it could get ugly. I have, there's people yesterday at the, I was at the Ontario Federation of Labor gathering of you know activists. Uh, community partners, student unions, uh, do you know what I mean? Uh, the, mm-hmm. the, uh, Ontario Health Coast, all these groups come into a room with labor, and we're talking about how to take this fight back, back, and, and, and go. But, you know, for me, Bill, I, I learned a long time ago, I, don't, I just don't flap your gums without a, without a plan. So uh, for Lisa McLeod, I actually have, you know, my members who provide that service, along with parents, are preparing a position paper to show her how she could make it work. It would take patience on her part and more money, but it could be, you know, you could get away from that voucher system, make it not-for-profit, and help a lot more kids. Yeah, well, this uh, is, we and that's the kind delivery. of constructive dialogue that we need to get. We're just about out of yeah. time, Smokey. I, okay. I, I, I'm going to be interested to see as uh, the summer goes along there, uh, your scorecard as to who talks, who listens, et cetera. But uh, uh, it's an interesting strategy. Thanks so much for explaining us, and uh, thanks so much for the time today.
No, you got my number. Call me anytime, and thanks for having me on, Bill. I really appreciate it. Will do. Thanks again. Smokey Thomas, of course, president of OPSU. Should be an interesting summer then with the uh, the strategy from the labor unions and, uh, and the government. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We know that the Mueller report was uh, really, well, it hasn't been released. It was given to the Attorney General. I guess it's really the Barr report now because what we got from the Attorney General was a four-page uh, explanation or his take, I guess, on the Mueller report uh, with one or two different quotes on there. But the uh, the controversy has not ended. As a matter of fact, you can probably argue that it's ramped up. Uh, we're hearing from the White House today that uh, the President wants to investigate the investigation now and uh, try to go after the Democrats who he says are the real cause of, of all the turmoil and, and for this what he called, uh, well, witch hunt for many, many years. Joining us to talk about this is Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at uh, Carleton University. Elliot, how are you doing this morning? I'm fine. I'm fascinated by all of this, of course. It's uh, d- different with every turn. and I'm, I'm, I guess the question that I had, and I think you and I talked about this the first time we talked about the Mueller report, uh, and, and uh, we, I don't, it hasn't been answered, at least not to, to my knowledge anyway, is if, if Trump is, well, I'm not going to say exonerated, that's his phrase, and, and I think Mueller, we're told anyway, uh, pointedly said that he could not uh, exonerate the president on this. But if nobody did anything illegal, why are they all lying? Yes, that's been raised over and over again. Uh, and underlying that is implicitly the question, well, if all of these people, in fact, were lying about something, a certain kind of behavior, how can you conclude there was no collusion? Uh, all of this, the various lying things, and, and there, you know, there's convictions, and people are going to jail because, in part, of, of lying. But uh, they were lying in some cases, apparently, about uh, their activities, and there are a lot of charges still pending. So there's a lot of questions raised that, on the one hand, Mueller provided evidence of people, and it wasn't just Mueller, but the press, but Mueller in particular, and he sent this to courts, has found evidence of people talking to the Russians during the campaign and even afterwards about various things, including uh, providing polling information and getting dirt on Hillary and uh, what about this Trump Tower financial implication and and the WikiLeaks, can, you know, Roger Stone and the WikiLeaks, you know, Russians, if you're listening, how about going after her emails, and they did. So there's all of that cloud of of um, past behavior that's been now on the public record that's now been uh, said to be not rising to the level of conspiracy or collusion. But I'm, I'm, I'm troubled by that part of it too, though, Elliot. And, and you've just listed some things there that we know to be true. It's not speculation anymore. Uh, we know that uh, that Manafort had dealings. We know that that Michael Flynn had dealings with the Russians over there. We know that there was a meeting in Trump Tower with Russian oligarchs and and jo- Trump Jr. Uh, and and we know, as you say, that there was a sharing of information about the campaign. Uh, where wh- why is that not collusion? I mean, that's hanging around with the Russians. That's doing business with the Russians during the campaign. Uh, and of course, there's the, as you mentioned the WikiLeaks conversation that Roger Stone. Uh, heard that, uh, that that Michael Cohen, I guess, eavesdropped on and, and heard him talking to Assange about there's going to be a, a big release in a couple of days. Well, well it, was, it was that night that right. Trump made that comment about, hey, Russia, if you're listening, and bingo, two days later, there are the emails. Not only that, but uh, when the campaign was at its lowest ebb, that is, after the Hollywood, Access Hollywood tapes, and it looked like Trump was a goner, it was just a, a day later that the Russians started to really leak very helpful information to him, that is, People got distracted from that crisis 
and he got through that crisis and ultimately, we know, elected president. But as you and I have been talking about actually for a very long time now, I've been saying to you and with you that the Mueller report could be sent in on the back of an envelope. We did not find behavior that rises to the level of criminality that could be, in all likelihood, lead to a conviction in a court of law. That's a very high bar, and that's the bar. I'm sorry to use the term bar in this case because that's <laughs> we have the attorney general named bar. But that's, that's perhaps the basis. We don't have the whole report, but that's perhaps the basis on which, on that side of thing, the conspiracy or uh, uh, collusion charge could not be met. So, and this is this is one of the reasons why I, I, I guess everyone, the Democrats, and even a lot of Republicans, are saying, "Look at release the report." I mean, uh, because the, the, there needs to be some clarity on this, and we've all seen this happen within the legal system, haven't we, Elliot? Where uh, I mean, O.J. Simpson was found not guilty, you know, the, in, in his murder trial. He wasn't found innocent. He was found not guilty, which means they couldn't meet the threshold uh, for conviction. And we don't know if that's the situation with a lot of the stuff here. We don't know how much information uh, Mueller gathered about what was going on there. And maybe he did make the, the, the evaluation that, look, that doesn't meet the threshold where we can actually lay charges. But it does, if the, if the follow the breadcrumbs here, uh, we can make our own decisions about whether or not there was collusion. Whether it was criminal collusion, well, we're not lawyers, but exactly, that's, that's, the, that's the court of public opinion. Right. And those breadcrumbs are, are, are things that he provided <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that came out of the Mueller investigation. So I think that's one key thing. There's, reading the, um, there, there's really three components to the investigation that you and I have talked about all along, although it wasn't laid out in this fashion uh, as clearly. But one is the collusion or conspiracy with foreign power, which is, you know, there's no evidence of, you know, that, there's a quote from the Mueller report that's in the Barr report of the Mueller report uh, to that effect. The second is the question of obstruction of justice. We can talk about that. And the third was financial, uh, for one way or another, financial impropriety. On the second one, on obstruction of justice, the, uh, there's a lot being made that, well, you know, he gathered information on both sides. And the president said, you know, I'm completely exonerated, where the quote from the report uh, that Barr put into his four-page summary was that there is not exoneration nor reasons to, to convict. That was on both sides. You guys make up your mind. And immediately, and this is important to note, the Barr summary then said, we have examined the information. Since, since Mueller would not come to a conclusion, we've looked at it. We have come to a conclusion. And that conclusion is there was no obstruction of justice. So two out of the three areas that Mueller actually was dealing with and that Mueller reported directly two of those areas reported directly to Barr who now is, has to report to, to the Congress nope, no problem here <laughs> move on the third one and that's the financial impropriety those were kicked off all along and you, you and I have been talking about this over yeah. time I said the Mueller report's partially in we know that the Mueller report uh, will deal with financial things but they kicked this off Immediately, they found evidence. They sent it to various. There were there were some grand juries, and they've sent it to four different jurisdictions. Half of them to the uh, Southern District of, of New York, that is Manhattan. But uh, four different jurisdictions, federal jurisdictions, are now seized with material that the Mueller team um, found as part of their investigation, and said that's really not up to us. We're putting it over to you for criminal investigation to, to determine whether there's a crime here or not. 
Yeah, and those are ongoing, and, and that's yes. that's yet to be determined. But so on, on the point of, of, of sure. you know, whether or not there was a, an attempt at cover-up and, and trying to, you know, get in the way of this thing, I mean, the day after he fired Comey, uh, he bragged to the Russian foreign minister that he did it because he wouldn't release Michael Flynn. He wouldn't back off Michael Flynn. Uh, that that sounds to me as if that's it, you know trying to get in the way of the investigation. I'm going to fire the guy who's in charge of it because that's. Uh, I think we tend to forget that Comey started this whole thing. Right, and he, well, I that's a separate issue. Well, yeah, we we could talk about Comey's but, character. That but, that's uh, another dis- discussion. Uh, he also said, "I was I intended to fire him anyway. It's about getting rid of this Russia thing." And he was talking to the Russians in the, in yeah. the, in the Oval Office at that point on tape. Um, so we, we've seen. So we, uh, we've always said there's prima facie case here for obstruction, but uh, Mueller did not confirm one way or another directly. He said on the one hand, on the other hand, and Barr has now said we have made the determination. This is official that there was no obstruction. Let's talk a little bit about Barr. Uh, obviously, there was a controversy when he was picked by Trump to to, do, to take over the job after they fired Jeff Sessions. Uh, and and we watched uh, at least a lot of us anyway. I know watched the uh, the confirmation hearings, and there were some concerns raised, and I think some legitimate concerns that may have manifested themselves with over the last couple of days. Uh, may not know the history. I know you do, Elliot. But I mean, Barr. This is the second time in, as an AG. Mm-hmm. His first go round in, in the Justice Department. Uh, he was a, a key figure in in not just fashioning, but making sure the president gave pardons to some key members in the Iran Contra deal. I mean, Casper uh, Weinberger and others that were going to go on trial because of illegalities, and he pardoned them all. Yeah. Uh, and and. <laughs> You got to wonder about his mindset, and of course, you've talked about the uh, the, the the letter that he wrote uh, before he even became attorney general, critical of the Mueller report. So, uh, you got to wonder: is this guy working f- towards political expediency, or is he actually trying to work towards uh, uh, rolling out, you know, the the justice that's needed here? Well, we talked about just last week before the Mueller report was released about the various issues, and have suggested, you know, this high bar, the the high. We have a criteria for actually reaching conviction on, and so we talked about those, and we uh, talked also about the fact that there was reason for concern about the attorney general because he wrote a 19-page memo when he was a private citizen, long out of public view, but he suddenly appeared with this 19-page memo, calling into question the legitimacy of the Mueller investigation and its scope, and then focusing in on the obstruction uh, of justice uh, component of it. And his decision now parallels what he said then in that memo. So there, there's ongoing reasons why the Mueller report is not done. The Democrats, there's six House committees now under control of the Democrats that have combined along with the House leader and the Senate leader saying by April 2nd we want the entire report released and we want not just the summaries and all that but the underlying material. And, you've, and this is too bar saying, you've got to release this by April 2nd. They don't say, or what, <laughs> but they can subpoena him, of course. Yeah, but does he have to comply? I mean, with the subpoena, maybe, not, but no, does he have but to release the, the information? In the term subpoena, he can be called before Congress to testify, and you, it, it, he know, you don't lie to them, <laughs> the Attorney General, So, which is one reason uh, you have to go back. Jeff, Jeff Sessions had to recuse himself because there was possible implications in the Russian side of things. He said, I can't preside over that. And he got, uh, as you know, years of vilification from Trump as a result. Trump sees the attorney general as being there to defend him and protect him. That's not the constitutional definition of the role of the attorney general. Is it, however, 
the interpretation of the current attorney general. Well, and and uh, that was clear with Sessions that that he wanted him to be his personal attorney. The uh, attorney general, as you've talked to us about in the past, of course, is by definition there to protect the Constitution of the United States, not to protect the president. Precisely. Uh, the president's got his own lawyers, and 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 not just with White House lawyers, but his own personal lawyers, and so that's that's done there. But he he got rid of Sessions because he wouldn't be his lapdog. He put Matt Whitaker there on an interim basis, and clearly Whitaker uh, was was let's uh, shall we say. Uh, motivated to, to make sure the president was okay. And we found out, by the way, that he did mislead the uh, the, the congressional committee that uh, Whitaker testified to. They had to call him back, and now they did it behind closed doors because they found out that he said he didn't have any contact with the president about the Mueller investigation. Turned out he did. Well, standing above it all, we now have a situation where a president found himself accused, now finds himself out from under that uh, the most intense legal scrutiny uh, of what he was accused about. And this is a clear victory, as everyone is saying, uh, for him. And he's now, as the, some media is calling it, he's going to weaponize this as part of his campaign. The issue now for everyone is, will this turn a page? And everybody now says, okay, can we get on with governing now? Or are elements of this going to drag on and drag down the, the judicial process and the, and the uh, legislative process and the political process going into 2020? Is there an appetite for that? Yes, on both sides. That is, yes, let's turn the page, and no, we can't just let this go. And remember, these investigations continue. There's an internal FBI investigation, I think, still going on. So a few questions there. One, to what degree is Barr, in fact, going to intervene further beyond this, if any? He may just play the normal traditional role and let things continue on. But the investigations in the various courts around the the, the jurisdictions around the country, those are federal, under him. <laughs> so that's something to keep an eye on. I suspect he will keep hands off. But those are going to continue on throughout the campaign season. Other charges may now be coming forward involving various aspects of financial impropriety involving the president and his family. And so what's going to happen there? Secondly, um, will the Democrats now go one path or the other path. That is, our, they will just continue saying, look, this isn't over. It can't be over. There's just too many strands here. Or are they going to say, we know this is, the, the public's fed up, and this will hurt us if we continue. It'll look like sour grapes, and the president and his, his Twitter account and Fox News and his supporters are in, in Congress are going to, in both houses, are going to say that, you know, you're just picking on this guy. You, you've lost. Give it up. Or... Uh, will everybody now say, let's get on with it? Number one and number two concerns, according to polling of the general public, is not any of this. It's the economy. It's the economy. <laughs> and after that, health care. Yep. And just today, just today, uh, right after his uh, complete exoneration, as he's put it, uh, Trump has said, I now want to repeal entirely, root and branch, the Obamacare. So health care is going to be back front and center of domestic politics uh, in the U.S. going forward. Elliot, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. I know we'll talk again. This is not over by any stretch. U.S. politics just goes on and on. It does, it does. Thanks again, Elliot. We'll talk oh, again soon. Welcome. Elliot Tepper, of course, from uh, Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. 
I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.